0: Uh, If you didn't receive a study sheet, would you raise your hand right now? We'll take just a second to make sure that everybody has one. It will help you immensely as we go through our study today to get the train of thought. And let me just say from the outset, while you all are trying to get yourself cozy there, now listen, today is one of those days to where if I would have given you everything that I really want you to get on that study sheet, you wouldn't have your head up any time in the service, and so rather than try to frustrate you, what I've done is I've just given you the big picture. You write down the things today that are significant. I hope that everything that is said uh, falls into that category. But uh, the reason that we've kind of abbreviated it this week is just so that we don't we don't frustrate you, because really everything that we're about to say uh, relative to this passage today is moving somewhere and is laying a foundation for something that you're going to see a little later on. So it's, it's kind of like one of those movies to where at the beginning of that thing, they're setting all of the characters and they're giving you all of the foreshadowing you're going to need so that when we come to the end of the movie, you're going to be able to put it all together. So hang with me and uh, let's have some fun this morning. And let's turn to Revelation chapter 17 this morning. Revelation chapter 17 and as we're moving there let me just kinda take a second to dial all of you folks in who are here for the first time man I, I wish I had the ability to to plug into your thinking right now everything that we have seen thus far in this study but the thing that you need to understand as we're moving into chapter 17 is we've just come off the heels obviously of chapter 15 and 16 but now listen In chapter 15 and 16 what God has showed us here is that there has been something significant that's been taking place for the last six thousand years now now check this out for the last six thousand years God who is holy who cannot coexist with sin for the last six thousand years has been pouring out his grace he's been pouring out his love His mercy, His tenderheartedness, His compassion. He's been pouring that out. We've been the recipients of it. But what Revelation chapter 15 and verse 1 also lets us know is that all the time while God has been manifesting the fact that He is a God of love and grace and mercy, something's been taking place in heaven. In heaven, and if you could go there this morning, you'd see this. There are seven vials that are up around the throne room of God. And and what uh, Romans chapter 2 teaches us is that the wrath of God is going to be revealed against, listen to it, all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men. Now, anybody here unrighteous? I, I am... Anybody here ungodly? God is a God of love and grace and mercy, and necessarily so, he is also a God of... Say what? He's also a God of wrath. The two go hand in hand, and something's been happening with the wrath of God for the last 6,000 years. It's been filling up into these seven vials And at the last part of the tribulation period, that's the context that we're dealing with in uh, Revelation 15 and 16. In the last part of the tribulation period, what's going to take place is God is finally going to come to the place to where he has had enough. God's going to point to one of the four beasts. The four beasts are around the throne of God. He's going to point to one of them. One acting for all of them is going to take the seven vials and begin to distribute those to seven angels. Those seven angels will then be dispersed to this planet and will begin to pour out those seven vials full of God's wrath on this planet. And this is why Jesus said about this time, he says there's never been a time like it before it. He says there'll never be a time like it after it. Because all of God's wrath is going to be pouring out upon this planet and we saw in chapter 16 that as that first vial is poured out men who have taken the mark of the beast which is necessary to buy and sell anything during the tribulation period everyone who has taken the mark of the beast has broken out with excruciatingly painful sores all over their body every drop of water on this planet in the seas and in the streams in the second and third vial as they're poured out has turned to blood So man is in excruciating pain because of his sores. He can't find anything but blood to drink on this planet. And then the fourth vial is poured out and it affects the sun. And the sun gets seven times brighter, Isaiah says, and it begins to scorch men with its heat. So on top of the sores and on top of the incredible thirst from no water to drink, here comes this incredible sun as the fifth vial is poured out. What begins to take place is the the, the water of the, the Euphrates is dried up and it's God just leading the armies of the world to a place to where the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come back, is going to stomp the people like grapes, and the blood is going to come up, it says, to the horse's bridle for a period or a, a stretch of almost 200 miles long, and then. The sixth vial is poured out, and it hits directly upon the domain of the, the Antichrist, the seed of the beast. As the seventh is poured out, hailstones, check this out, a hundred pounds in weight begin to just pelt the people of this planet. And this is the fun we've been having over the last several months as we've been talking about Revelation 15 and 16. I mean, this is, this is some incredible... Incredible stuff. And you know what? I just got to tell you, I don't like to even think about it. I don't even like to talk about it. But it's here. And God says that I am to preach the Word, and God says that I am to declare the whole counsel of God, and this is part of His counsel. This is part of what God has said for us. And I'm saying all of that right now to you so that you can understand what's about to happen as we come into Revelation chapter 17, because I want you to listen very, very carefully to me this morning. I, you know, I don't lay awake at night thinking, let's see, how could I offend these people on Sunday? That is my goal, my desire, our purpose in this church, is is not to be offensive to anybody. But what we're going to see as we come into Revelation chapter 17 this morning is God's judgment of Babylon. And what we're about to see is something that is going to strike very, very close to home, and you'll see what I mean in just a, a couple of minutes. Let's look at Revelation chapter 17. <clears throat> And verse 1, and there, there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials, okay? And at this point, they're empty, okay? And now what he's getting ready to do is he's getting ready to describe something that he had mentioned back in verse 19 of chapter 16, this great city of Babylon coming into remembrance before God. Now chapter 17 and 18 is going to be a commentary on that. Where God's going to show us His judgment upon this place, but it's a very unusual place because what you're about to see here is that this woman is, or this place is described as a woman. He, the angel that had the seven vials came and talked with me, saying unto me, "Come hither. I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth." "...upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of abominations." and filthiness of her fornication, and upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And John says, and I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus, and when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration." And what we see as we come into chapter 17, just by way of a preview, we're not going to get through this or even near this this morning, but just so you can begin to see where we're going in this passage. In verses 1 through 6, it's the judgment of the Babylonish mother. The Babylonish mother. And then as we come to verses 17 and 18, Roman numeral 2, you can just jump down there. It's the judgment of the Babylonish monster. The Babylonish monster. But as we're looking at the, the passage that we just read, the judgment of this Babylonish mother, what we're going to be looking at is, first of all, her universal power in verses 1 and 2. Her universal power. And then in verse 3, we're going to look at her unique position. And just note that this woman is sitting on the back of the scarlet-colored beast. The beast, of course, is the... Hello? the Antichrist so she has a very unique position in the tribulation period and letter C will look at the first part of verse 4 at her unlimited prosperity and then letter D her unholy passions in verses 4 and 5 and then verse 6 her untold persecutions now <clears throat> all the way through this, as I, I've read this, God says, okay, this, this city, this Babylon, is a great horror." And all the way through the passage, he's talking about this woman, this woman, this woman. And I, I mentioned a few minutes ago uh, about this somewhat like a movie. It would be an incredible movie. In fact, they're starting to come out with those movies uh, even as we speak right now. But, but now, now check this out. It's kind of like, you know, I don't know if you've ever done this, where your family's watching some show, they're watching a movie, and here you come in, and the last 10 minutes of it, and it is, I mean, it's intense, and all this stuff is taking place, you're seeing all these things going on, and you're looking at that thing, and you're taking it all in, and you're just waiting for the commercial so you can find out what is up with all this. You know what I'm talking about? And so during the commercial, your family is talking about, okay, now here's the deal. They're talking as fast as they can possibly talk to try to catch you up so that you can enjoy the last few minutes of this movie with them. And this morning, what I feel like we're doing is we're coming into the very last little part of a movie. And we're seeing all of this stuff about this woman and this woman and this woman. And you know what? We could go through the passage and we could teach it, and yet... I'm not real sure that we would get the full benefit of what is really taking place here without somebody just kind of stopping and saying let me catch you up on what's been taking place all through the Bible concerning this woman that we're seeing here in Revelation chapter 17. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're just going to go back and we're going to take a historical and biblical view of this woman that we're seeing in Revelation chapter 17 because this woman that is coming under the judgment of God in Revelation chapter 17 is a very popular woman throughout the Word of God. And again, now, just hold on to your seat. If you're a guest with us today, please understand, we're not trying to attack anybody's religion. The goal is not to be offensive. But God is coming in judgment in this passage against a religious system. The, thing, the reason I keep talking about this offensive thing is you've got to understand something. This woman, this religious system that is coming under the judgment of God in chapter 17 is a religious system that is incredibly popular in our world right now. In fact, almost 20% of the world's population has already embraced this woman. Has already, as it says here, crawled into her bed to commit fornication with her. And the thing that you need to understand is this is not some demonic cult by way of its name. This religious system goes by the name of Christianity. People are following this system of religion in the name of Jesus. And so let's, let's just begin to go through the Word of God see what we can learn about this woman. Okay, turn with me, if you would, to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 7. <clears throat> Proverbs chapter 7. And as you're turning there, let me just remind you that every passage in the Bible has, has three applications. There's, there's three layers, if you will, of application in every passage in the Word of God. First of all, there is the historical application. And what the histor you can see them listed on your study sheet there. The first application is the historical. And, and that is, this, you, you come to this passage, and this is something that actually took place. In a historical setting, it's a real situation with real people, it really happened, and the historical application is us going and understanding what this passage was dealing with in terms of its history, where it fell in history. There's another layer of application, and that is what is called the devotional application and the devotional application is what was taking place with this group of people if you just begin to look at that thing there are all kinds of applications that you can begin to make to your life relative to the things that we've seen played out in history but there's another layer of application that most people in Christian circles today miss they never actually see this and because of it they really miss the spark plug of the Bible I mean, this is the thing that gives it life. This is the thing that just, you begin to see some of these things, and it just tilts your mind the way that God thinks. And this is the doctrinal application. And the doctrinal application is, what is this passage actually teaching? Why is this in God's Word? What is God actually trying to teach through this? Sometimes we call this the prophetic application of Scripture, because what is taking place here is historically is something that is going to be played out in the future, in a prophetic type of sense. Okay, now, let, let, me, let me just, and again, now remember, we're just setting the stage for everything that we're about to see this morning. Let, let's talk about the three levels of application in the, the book of Revelation for just a second. Okay? In the book of Revelation... In chapters 2 and 3, our Lord writes seven letters to seven churches in Asia Minor. The things that he writes to these churches, you can just go through there, they were addressing real situations, real events with real people that were taking place around 95 A.D. when John received this revelation. That's the historical context. Now, the devotional context of Revelation 2 and 3 is those churches that you see there really are descriptive of churches that have always been in existence ever since there's been church. In fact, you can go anywhere in America and you can see churches that would fall into the description of those seven churches that we see that our Lord wrote those seven letters to in Asia Minor. Okay, that's the devotional application. However, when you take those seven letters and you put them into the context of the book of Revelation and you begin to employ the, the, the Bible study methods that the Bible talks about that we need to employ when we go to this book, or any book, what we begin to see, if we rightly divide the word of truth, is something happens in the book of Revelation that happens two times and two times only. And what is it, folks? Heaven opens. It opens two times in the book. When it opens the first time, in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1, somebody comes down to the clouds and somebody's caught up. In The other time that it opens, in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11, somebody comes out of heaven this time and they come all the way down to the ground. It's as obvious as it can possibly be in Revelation 4.1. You have the rapture of the church as John hears a trumpet, there's a voice and all of that's spelled out for you in Revelation 4.1. That's the placement of the rapture. In Revelation nineteen eleven, it's the second coming of Jesus Christ. In chapter 1 of the book of Revelation, what John did is he received this revelation and God says, listen, I want you to write in three tenses. But now listen, what you've got to understand is that when John was writing in these three tenses in the book of Revelation, in verse 10 of Revelation chapter 1, John says, I was in the Spirit on the, on the Lord's day. The Lord's Day, biblically, is not a reference to Sunday. The Lord's Day is the theme of the Bible. The Lord's Day is the tribulation period that culminates with the second coming of Christ. So as he writes this revelation in three tenses, he is catapulted to the time of the day of the Lord. So, if the, in Revelation 4.1, if the rapture is right here, which moves you into the tribulation period, that which is past would have been the church age. That which is present is the tribulation period as it culminates with the second coming of Christ four times from Revelation 4 all the way to chapter 19. And then that third tense, the future tense, would be Revelation chapter 20, 21, 22, where you have in chapter 20 the millennium, chapter 21 the new heaven and the new earth, and chapter 22 eternity. So what we begin to see as we take this this, uh, doctrinal application of Scripture is that when we take these seven letters to the seven churches, what God is doing is he's taking us through seven periods of church history that culminate with the rapture. As soon as that final letter is written in chapter 3 and verse 22, bang, the rapture takes place in chapter 4 and verse 1. And so what we see is God, in Revelation 2 and 3, is bringing us through seven periods of church history. He's letting us, in an outline form, be able to go back and see what was going to take place over the last 2,000 years. Now that's real important that you see that. We're going to be hitting around that all all through the time this morning. But you should be to Proverbs chapter 7 by now. And What I want us to do is just take a quick look at the three applications of Scripture when it comes to Proverbs Chapter Seven. Now, of course, historically, we know because Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 1 tells us that these are the Proverbs or the instructions of the king of Israel, of course, to the nation of Israel. So, in a historical sense, Proverbs 7, as it deals with the context of the strange woman, what this is in a historical sense, is God's warning to the young men of the nation of Israel to guard against being sexually seduced by strange or foreign women. But you see, if all you do is go to Proverbs chapter 7 and you apply this to the nation of Israel, you're going to miss a whole bunch of what God is trying to get us to see because Proverbs chapter 7 is not just... For that group of people, man, there is a practical application, a devotional application to every young man and not-so-young man who would ever live in any period of time concerning this thing of sexual allurement. And look at what he says in verse 1. My son, keep my words and lay up my commandments with thee, Keep my commandments, and live, and my law is the apple of thine eye. Bind them upon thy fingers, write them upon the table of thine heart, say unto wisdom, Thou art my sister, and call understanding thy kinswoman, that they may keep thee from the strange woman, from the stranger which flattereth with her words. And then he begins to describe the ways of this strange woman in verse 6. For at the window of my house I looked through my casement, and I beheld among the simple ones, I discerned among the youths, a young man void of understanding, passing through the street near her corner. And he went the way to her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the black and dark night. And behold, there met him a woman with the attire of an harlot, and subtle of heart. She's loud and stubborn, her feet not ab- abide not in her house. Now is she without, now in the streets, and lieth in wait at every corner. So she caught him. And kissed him, and with an impudent face said to him, I have peace offerings with me. This day I have paid my vows, therefore came I forth to meet thee, diligently to seek thy face, and oh, I have found thee. Oh, I have been looking for you all of my life, and now here you are. Oh, I have decked my bed with coverings of tapestry, with carved works, with fine linen of Egypt. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. come. Let us take our fill of love until the morning. Let us solace ourselves with loves, for the goodman is not at home. He is gone on a long journey. He hath taken a bag of money with him and will come home at the day appointed. He's not going to be around for a long time, so, hey, we can have a great time. With her much fairer speech, she caused him to yield. With flattering of her lips, she forced him. He goeth after her straightway as an ox goeth to the slaughterer, as a fool to the correction of the stocks till the dart strike through his liver as the bird hasteth through the snare and knoweth not that it is for his life. Hearken unto me now, therefore, O ye children, and attend to the words of my mouth. Let not thine heart decline to her ways. Go not astray in her path, for she hath cast down many wounded. Yea, many strong men have been slain by her. Her house is the way to hell going down to the chambers of death. And listen, there isn't a man in this room that doesn't need to apply these words to their life. And verse 3, look at it again, bind them upon your fingers and write them upon the table of your heart. And, and you see, the reason for that, the reason you bind them like that and you put them upon the tables of your heart is it's real easy for us men in this room to say, say no to this strange woman, when we're in this room. But when you get in that room described in verses 16 and 17, you're in trouble, buddy. And and the key is never finding yourself in that room. Verse 4, look at it. Having the wisdom and the understanding. Verse 5, that'll keep you from that strange woman and never allowing yourself, as verse 22 says, to go after her. And the whole chapter is all about... Now listen. He's saying, don't learn this the hard way. Look at verse 26 and 27. Don't learn this the hard way because if you learn it that way, it's too late. She'll ruin your life. And and oh my goodness, man. Young men, men in this room, would you listen? As the, the wisest man who ever lived... That had 300 wives and 700 concubines. Listen to him as he talks about this strange woman. He says in verse 27, she will make, oh, you you have this wonderful time in verse 16 and 17 when you're in that room. But buddy, when you get out of that room, she is going to make your life just like verse 27 says. She will make it hell. The rest of verse 27, she'll cause you to go down to the chambers of death. She'll bring death to your marriage. She'll bring death to the relationship that you have with your kids. She'll, she'll bring down the soulish part of you to where it's dead and dying in your mind and your will and emotions. And she may even bring you down physically through sexual, sexually transmitted diseases. And, and, and listen, we could go on and, and on and on. And we have through the years. Is trying to scream out to the men of this church, listen, here is a warning that every single one of us need to heed. Bind it upon your fingers. Get it written in the table of your heart. But now, now listen, though. As important as all of that application is, if that's all you ever get out of Proverbs chapter 7, and you never really understand the real teaching of this thing doctrinally, listen to this. It could be more disastrous for you than actually crawling into the bed with the strange woman that lurks on the streets. The the strange woman, and that whole thing that we we just read about and we have just talked about there, it's all a picture. Everything that we just read applies practically, it's all true, and it better be heeded, but it's all to teach us something very, very important that God wants us to know. The strange woman, as you just begin to go from this passage and you, you set everything that is said here, the strange woman in a doctrinal or a prophetic sense is a picture or a type of the false religious system Of Satan and that is something that is used consistently throughout the Bible now again that's why in Revelation chapter 17 this woman keeps coming up this woman who is riding on the back of the beast during the tribulation period you know what she is she's Satan's false system of religion And you see, once you get turned on to what Proverbs chapter 7 is, man, you can go back to these verses and learn all kinds of stuff about how Satan works through this woman to lure people in to commit spiritual fornication and adultery with her. Look at verse 7. What it says is it happens to the simple. It happens to those void of understanding. Look at verse 21. With her much fairer speech, she caused him to yield. With the flattering, listen to that now, with the flattering of her lips, she forced him. And you've got to understand something. As we're talking about the false system of religion, the false religious systems of this world will flatter you. You know what? You can go through every single one of them and the telltale sign of whether or not it is a false religious system is what does it actually say to you and what you'll notice about every false religious system in this world is somehow some way they're going to get you into the mix of how you actually provide salvation for yourself it's going to be so subtle. Oh, yes, Jesus begins a work of grace in you, and then you complete that. Here comes the flattery. You see, you have a part, and you know what? There's something that is just intrinsically religious about man, and man likes to get his nasty, dirty works into the mix because he feels better about himself. It's flattery. You know how you really know true Bible Christianity? It won't flatter you. it'll flatten you. It brings you to the point to where you understand your sinfulness before a holy God. You're confronted with the real issue of salvation, and the, the issue is you're a sinner and you can't do anything whatsoever about it. You come to the point like Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount, where you are poor in spirit, you're bankrupt before God, and you mourn your sinfulness, and you're brought to a place of meekness and despair where you cry out in hunger and thirst for a righteousness that is outside of yourself. But what's happening in our world today is we're so busy trying to flatter people into this thing, When the real thing is, when God is working in our life, when the Spirit of God is working, He convicts us of what? Sin and the Lord's righteousness and the judgment that's to come. You see, but this religious woman, she's going to flatter. She's going to make you feel good about all the religious rituals and all the religious things that you do, and what you bring to this table. Verse 26, look at it. She has cast down many wounded. You know, you know what happens? People go through difficulty in their life. The bottom drops out. And you know what they start doing? They start looking to get religious. And there's a woman out there. Seeking to lure people in through the flattery that's involved in religiousness. She hath cast down many wounded. They are so vulnerable to a false system of religion. Verse 26 goes on, Yea, many strong men have been slain by her. It's not just people with the bottom dropping out, man. And what we find out is that in the same way that men are prone and, and prey to elicit physical, sexual relationships, what we find in this passage is that mankind is also very prone and very much prey to elicit religious fornication. And verse 27, very literally, her house is the way to hell. And, and you know what? There's been a lot of men who have never physically gone down this street that leads to destruction, but spiritually they have. And verse 27 says they go to hell. And you see, that's how Satan uses his woman. But the thing that you've got to understand this morning, is when we're talking about this woman, when we're talking about this false religious system, and are you guys understanding everything you've heard thus far? Okay, cool. You've you got to understand that as we're, as we're talking about this, this woman that is this false religious system that, that Satan uses, you've got to understand that there is really only one woman. There's only one false system of religion. Now, we look at it and we see it, you know, in all kinds of different ways because through the centuries, what Satan has been a master at doing, just like it talks about in Job chapter 41, he's dressed her up in all kinds of various garments. He's given her all kinds of seductive faces and different names, but it's all the same woman. And it's all the same goal. And what it is, the goal is to get the people of this world religiously to crawl in bed with her so that Satan can send them to hell. And I can't stress to you the importance of how it happens. Again, back at the beginning of the passage, it says that it happens to the simple. It happens to those who are void of understanding. It happens to those who have no wisdom. And you see, that's why we're... That's why we're talking about this this morning. So that we're not simple. So that nobody in this room is void of understanding. So nobody is is thinking, I'm on my way to heaven because I've received some work that Jesus did and I'm doing my best to complete that work. We're we're just making sure that there's nobody in this room that would come to that place in their life and be void of that understanding. Go back to Proverbs chapter 6. And look at verse 23, it says, For the commandment is a lamp, and the law is light, and reproofs of instruction are the way of what? Life, in contrast to going down to the chambers of death. Verse 24, These reproofs of instruction are the way of life to keep thee from the evil woman, from the flattery of the tongue of a strange woman. You see, that's your only defense, your knowledge and understanding of how God reveals her in this book. And you know, it has just been so interesting when you just step back from it for a second. And you understand that that's his false system of religion that he's using. And it's just so incredible when you begin to watch how he's working right now, just before this time that we're seeing in Revelation chapter 17. You know what? Most churches have to spend so much time banging the drum to try to keep their men from crawling in the sack with literal strange women that they don't have any time to be talking about another strange woman spiritually that will damn people's soul to hell. It's just an incredible to see what's, what's going on in our lifetime. But now, again, this This woman that we're talking about, that Satan has, he only has one woman. It's the woman that we're reading about in Revelation chapter 17, verses 1 through 6. So number one, she is the strange woman of the book of Proverbs. And now, number two. She is the religious woman of the Tower of Babel. She is the religious woman of the Tower of Babel. And I'd like for you to turn back to Genesis chapter 10 for a minute. Well, let's, let's talk for a second about the man that's connected to the Tower of Babel, this man you see on your study sheet named Nimrod. Now, we, 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 we've talked about this many, many times in our church. Let me just say this quickly for those of you that may be newer to the Bible, a newer believer, or maybe a, a guest that's here today. The theme of the Bible is all about A kingdom. The the Bible begins chronologically with a battle over a throne. Lucifer has a throne, and he's seeking to lift that throne up in opposition to God. He wants to be like the Most High. He wants to sit where God sits. Now listen, when the Bible ends, somebody's sitting on a throne on the earth, ruling and reigning over the entire world, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. But you've got to understand, everything from beginning to end in the Bible that takes place between those two events is all about God moving to get his son sitting on that throne and Satan doing everything within his power to make sure not only that he doesn't sit there, but that he puts himself there. Now that's what this entire book, what we call the Bible, is, is really all about. And the first time that you see the word kingdom found in the Bible, it's found here in Genesis chapter 10, in verses 8 through 10. L- look at it with me. And, and we're in the midst, if you just look back in the, the first... Uh first seven verses, and you'll just notice that it's one name after another that he lists here. And then he comes to verse 8, and it says, And Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth, and this is the first time that there's been a commentary on any name that's been listed in this passage. Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, or against the Lord, wherefore it is said, Even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. It's, it's like his epithet. It's what, you know, Muhammad Ali, the, the heavyweight champion of the world, Nimrod. It, it, that's what it is. The mighty hunter before the Lord. Verse 10, In the beginning of his kingdom was ba- Babel. And what we, what we see here is somebody who is setting himself up as a king over a kingdom on the earth. The name Nimrod just happens to mean rebellion, and he is a mighty hunter. And what we see as we move through chapter 10 and on into chapter 11 is this king, whose name means rebellion, is hunting men and women, listen now, to be a part of a one-world government and a one-world Religion, and what this is, is the Ecclesiastes 3.15 principle in operation. Ecclesiastes 3.15 says this, That which has been is now, and that which is to be has already been. You know what? This smells a whole lot like what took place when Lucifer wanted to exalt his throne against God. It's, It's just, history's repeating itself, and check this out, This is everything that we've been talking about in Revelation 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18. You know what it's all about? A king who is trying to set himself up in a one-world government, in a one-world religion, where he rules over the entire earth. And again, God says that which is to be has already been. And in chapter 11, you can see there in, in, in verses 3 and 4, it talks about the city, it talks about the tower. The city represents the governmental aspect of the kingdom. The tower represents the religious aspect of the kingdom. And you see, this tower that we see here in Revelation or Genesis chapter 11, verses 3 and 4, what this is, this tower is the beginning of Satan's first organized system Of religion. And from this point in the Bible, Babel or Babylon, every time you find it, every single time you find it, is always going to be against God. And and listen, once you see that, you pretty much have your bearings about why history in the Bible and history, even in the last 2,000 years, unfolds the way that it does. Because if you really want to understand the thing, though, You've got to understand something, not just about the man Nimrod in this thing, but the woman that's connected to the Tower of Babel. Now, now listen real carefully. Here, here's Nimrod, and he is the man. Everybody says, well, he's the mighty hunter against God. He's the mighty hunter before the Lord. He has got an incredible thing going on. He's got the people rallied. Look in verse 4 of chapter 11. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven, and let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Uh, Who is this all about? It's all about this kingdom of people who have rallied together in this one world government and this one world religion. But this guy Nimrod has a wife. Her name is Semiramis. You see it there on your study sheet. She was the high priestess of the Tower of Babel religion. Now now listen real carefully. I know we got junior hires in here this morning and all that. This is not that tough to understand. If you can get this, man, you'll set some stuff for yourself. As you see it unfold through history and unfold through the Bible, that will just change your life. High priestess, the Semiramis, of the Tower of Babel religion, and the way that it shakes down is this. When Nimrod died, and of course, I mean, that would have been a major thing with the renown that this this guy had. After he dies, Semiramis begins to claim that Nimrod was now the sun god. And after he dies, old Semiramis gets, gets pregnant. And what she does is she claims that she has conceived from Nimrod, this sun god, she has conceived in a supernatural birth, and by a sunbeam, because of course he's, he's the, the, the sun god, and, and so, you know, she makes the claim, I, I've known no man, but I am pregnant by the sunbeam from Nimrod, the, the, the sun god, and what you got here is a counterfeit of the virgin birth that you find in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 because Satan understood that this one that was going to come that would ultimately crush his head was one that would come from the seed of the woman and of course a woman has no seed he understood it would be a supernatural birth and so he's getting out way in front of it with a counterfeit birth that's taking place as Semiramis conceives by a, sun, a sunbeam she gives birth to a son. His name is found throughout the Old Testament. His name is Tammuz. His birthday, coincidentally enough, because you remember now this all is, is related to the sun. His birthday falls right in the big fat center of the winter solstice. You know what the date was of his birth? December twenty-fifth. And she claims that this is Nimrod come back to life in this sun, a picture of the resurrection. And, and, and what you find is way back in Babylon, listen now, thousands of years before the virgin birth of Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection, Satan has already been working to fulfill the prophecies, as it were, in his own counterfeit system of religion. And in this system, listen now, not only was the, not only was the child worshipped, but the mother was also worshiped and that's why no matter where you go in in the world and you study ancient religion you can go anywhere you want to go and what you're going to find is that they all worship a mother and a child and it goes all the way back to the tower of babel because you remember what happened in genesis chapter 11 what happened is god came down and he scattered those people because of what they were doing there he scattered those people throughout the entire earth and not only did he scatter them he did something else what did he do he confounded their language and so they all went all these people that had been a part of this one world government and this religious system they scattered all over the entire world and everywhere you find this mother with this child, in every case, she is the deity of sexual love and infer- fertility. In China, the mother goddess in, it was called Xing Mu. You know what it means? The holy mother. In Germany, she was the virgin Hertha. In India, she was known as Indrani. In Syria, she was known as Ishtar. In Ephesus, she was known as... Hello? Diana, where there was this major temple dedicated to her. In fact, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. According to Acts 19.27, it says in reference to the goddess Diana, listen, whom all Asia and all the world worshipeth. If you look it up and you see that this goddess Diana, you know what you're going to find? The crown that she wears, you know what it is? It's a replica of the Tower of Babel. On her head, the goddess Diana. You, you don't. You, this is. You don't. You don't have to. You don't have to connect anything. You don't have to make this fit. It, it, it all fits. In Egypt, she was called Isis, and her son Osiris. In Greece, she was known as. Listen to it now, Aphrodite, and her son Eros, which is the Greek word for sensual or romantic love. In Phoenicia, she was known as Ashtar, and her son, Baal. And man, if you want to just... You see, once you begin to see this stuff, and you understand the names of some of these people, and then you go into the Bible, when you see when the nation of Israel goes into apostasy, I'm telling you, it is... it's unbelievable. In Judges chapter 2 and verse 13, listen to it. It says, they forsook the Lord and served... Baal, and Ashtaroth. You know what it is? It's the mother goddess and her child from the Tower of Babel religion. Those were the names as the people were scattered into that Phoenician area. It's just unbelievable. When you get to Rome now, she was known as Venus, from which we get our word venereal in reference to sexually transmitted disease in her son jupiter who is sometimes called cupid now you got to you got to and I, oh my goodness i i've been i've been worried about today because this is i know this is some some heavy heavy stuff but listen if you'll get these pieces connected in your head i know that you're not going to be able to go out of here today and be able to repeat all of this stuff however if you can just get these pieces and you can begin to see something, something unbelievable is getting ready to take place, man. In the book of Revelation, when you come to the Revelation 2 and 3, and why don't you move o- over there. And you remember at the beginning we talked about those seven periods of church history? The reason I went through all of that stuff that probably seemed at that point so insignificant is you got to understand something. Satan has been moving all through the Bible to get himself on a throne in a one-world government with a one-world religion that has to do with his woman. And in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, what's been taking place through the first two periods of church history is Satan has been developing a, a false system to counter God's working through The church. Okay, now listen. All through the Old Testament, God has been orchestrating his plan, working this thing through the nation of Israel. And you see, at that point, the church was in a mystery form. Nobody nobody understood anything about the church. It was all the nation of Israel. He came unto his own, and his own, of course, received him not. And what you begin to see God working through the New Testament is the establishment of a church. And what we begin to see is God interjects a parenthesis where he is going to carry out his plan on this earth through this thing that is called the church. Listen, it was even a mystery to Satan. He didn't understand how all of this was going to work. So the Lord Jesus Christ comes, he establishes his church on the earth, it's the church through which he's going to move, which he is going to operate to carry out his plan on this, on this planet. And Satan didn't understand it. And so here it is. We move into that Ephesus church period in Revelation chapter two. And it's a it's a strong church. And and Satan is beginning to work though. He, he's beginning to, to, to find ways to, to make his way in as they leave their first love, and we've, we've talked about in the past, they begin to leave the words of the Bible and start using words that are outside of the Bible, and Satan is, is just watching all of that, picking up on those words, and, and oh my goodness, man, it, it's, it's beginning to form. It's, it's beginning to happen. He, he's looking at this thing and he says, now listen, I've got to get a counterfeit church going on, Let's see, how am I going to do this? Okay, bang. And he goes right back to this woman that he's used all through the Old Testament to come against the nation of Israel. And now what he's going to do is he's going to use that woman to come against the church. And he's been strategizing this thing through the first two church periods. And then you come into that third church period in, in Revelation chapter 3, the Pergamos church period. In verse 12 of chapter 2, you know what the name Pergamus means? It means much marriage. Pergamos. Pergamos. It's where we get our word polygamy. It's where we get the word bigamy. Pergamos. And what what Satan does is he pulls off a stroke of genius in this, this period of time that is just absolutely Unbelievable. What he does is he masterminds the marriage of this woman that he's been using all along, this strange woman, this religious woman from the Tower of Babel. He masterminds the marriage of this woman. To Christianity, and you see God's plan all along. According to Mark chapter 16 and verse 15, is for the church to reach the world. But what happened in the Pergamus period, which began around 325 A.D., is that in that time in history, the exact opposite took place. Rather than the church converting the world, the world converted the church. And again, all through those first two periods, Satan has been working to get his counterfeit church in operation. And he's made a lot of great strides, and a lot of structure's been put in place, but he hasn't been able to actually get that thing up and running. But here's how he did it. By the time you get to around 300 A.D. or so, or a little after, we've come through, in this Roman Empire that dominates the world, we've come through about 23... Roman emperors or so, and all of these guys are basically the same. They're all lost. They're all pagan. They're anti-God. They're anti-Bible. They're Uh, anti-Christian. There's a few of them that were a little more tolerant than others, but for the most part, they are all bent on wiping out Bible Christianity, and they believe that the way to do that is to kill anybody who claims to be one. And by 303 A.D., it, it's just uh, unbelievable the things that are going on. You can go back and you can read the history, and what it will say about this period of time is that it got to the point to where they ran out of ways to inflict torture and pain upon people who simply believe what this book said. But you see, the Roman Empire was beginning to be divided. And Satan is no dummy, buddy. He understands what it's going to take in order for this empire to rule the world because he's watched it happen because he orchestrated it back in Genesis chapter 10 and 11. He understands he's got to implement a one-world government, but in order for that thing really to get settled in, he's got to have a one-world religion. He knows that's the way to unite the world. Now, in 300 A.D., There's two men that are vying for being the next Roman Empire. One of them is a guy by the name of Maxentius. Another guy is a guy that you probably studied in college, a guy by the name of Constantine. And, And these two guys and their armies finally come to the battle... Uh, about uh, a battle about 10 miles north of Rome in 312 A.D. It's a very famous battle called the Battle of Milvian Bridge. And basically, whoever wins this battle is going to be the next Roman emperor. He's going to be the Pontifex Maximus. That is the name that he would be called. It was all... He was the Pontifex Maximus over the Babylon mystery religion. And of course, Constantine wins the battle, and being the political and military genius that he was, what he does is he credits the victory to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, oh man, it was the most unbelievable thing. You know, I was, I was in my tent, and, and I came out, and I didn't know what we were going to do with this battle. Man, it was really intense, and I, I, I came out, and I stepped out there, and all of a sudden, man, it was the most incredible thing. I became a Christian. Oh, really, Constantine? How, how'd you do that? Well, it was, it was incredible, man. I, I, heard this, I heard this voice, and I saw this sign in the sky. It was, it was kind of like a, the shape of a cross. And, and the voice I heard was, In this sign, thou shalt conquer. Okay, well, Constantine, when did you become a Christian? Oh, I just told you. I, I saw that... That sign in the sky, and I, I heard that voice, and, and so I went and I put crosses on all the shields and on all of the horses and, and all of that stuff. And, and it was incredible, man. The Lord, Jesus, He gave me the victory. And, and now He's claiming that, that He's a Christian. He's no more Christian than the man in the moon. He is simply a tool in the hand of Satan, and He is using what He called the religion of Christianity. To unify his kingdom. And now he sets out to help the cause of Christianity. And what he does is he grants Christians liberty. And you see, listen, they have been living through the most incredible persecution that you can imagine. That second period of church history, in the church Smyrna, the word Smyrna means bitterness and death. It's the word myrrh. It has to do with with death. And here are the Christians, no more persecution. And they're all like, oh, oh, this is wonderful. Hallelujah. No more persecution. And and Constantine pulls all the pastors together. And he says, hey, listen, what we're going to do now is we're going to pay you by the state. And he gets on the loudspeaker and he goes around in all the various places and he's offering people 20 pieces of gold if they'll become a Christian. He'll give them a new set of clothes, a baptismal robe robe for anybody that would convert to Christianity. And, of course, in in Constantine's definition of, of, of conversion, it means getting baptized, which, again, it has nothing whatsoever to do with a person's salvation. But at this point now, Rome supposedly has a christian emperor and since the roman system was both a political and a religious system a church state setup if you will just like it had been handed to him from the tower of babel but now since rome was christian and christianity become became the official religion of rome but you need to understand something through this whole process of what's going on here nothing Nothing was washed white. Everything was whitewash, and Christianity didn't convert paganism. What it did is it Christianized the paganism that was already in place throughout the Roman Empire. Listen, Rome didn't stop worshiping the mother goddess from the Tower of Babel religion, Semiramis. They didn't stop worshiping. The, the, the supernaturally born child, Tammuz, the Savior God, who was the incarnation of his father, you know what they did? They just gave him Christian names. Semiramis and Tammuz, the holy mother and child, overnight, becomes Mary and Jesus. The Christian festival held on December 25th in celebration of the sun god which was celebrated with triangular evergreen trees that you brought into the house and yule logs that were brought in and gift giving and mistletoe, all of that that comes straight out of pagan Rome, that comes straight out of the tower of of Babel. All of this stuff is now getting Christianized. The per- birthday of Tammuz or Baal, is the-, the sun god, hey, that's December 25th, and, well, we're Christian now, and so, well, that's the birthday of Jesus, because we're, we're Christians now. The spring festival that's called Ishtar, pronounced Ishtar, held in honor of the supposed resurrection of Tammuz, all of a sudden... It becomes Christian right along with the... the, I mean, you go back and study the thing out with the bunnies, the the colored eggs, the sunrise services. Listen, it's all the same stuff that was going on. Just now, we're using a different name over the top of it. Now listen, the the pagan Roman emperor in that governmental setup becomes, in this church state setup, the Roman emperor becomes the pope. The Roman Senate becomes the College of Cardinals. The pagan Roman imperial governors become the archbishops. The pagan Roman provincial governors become the bishops. And the pagan Roman civitas become the priests. The vestal virgins from the the Roman temples and all that was going on there become the nuns. And Satan did it, man. He did it. He marries the church to the world to come up with his own counterfeit church, which is called historically, and again, this is not an axe to grind with anybody that is in this room, but what was formed at that point was the Roman Catholic Church. The word Catholic means universal Christianity. The pagan religion of Rome becomes the papal religion of Rome. What Satan does is he takes his Babylonian system of religion that he de- developed under Nimrod and Semiramis at the Tower of Babel, and he marries it to Christianity to form his own counterfeit form of the, uh, of the church, which is really nothing more than the old pagan Babylonian system with a Christian name and a Christian face, just like Job 41 verses 13 and 14 says. Satan just changed the clothes, put on a different mask, but it was still him behind the mask, and it was still his system. And you see, this, this woman that we're talking about in Revelation chapter 17, it is this woman... From the Tower of Babel religion that just makes its way to Rome and then under Constantine, Satan uses that to form a church that is the counterfeit against God. And listen, what was going back on there in pagan Rome, you remember what we talked about? The persecutions that came upon those people? What began to take place after it became papal Rome is the persecutions didn't stop. You can go back and you can find even Catholic historians that will tell you that there were popes that murdered in one afternoon more people for the cause of Christ than all of the pagan emperors put together. And again, history says that they ran out of ways and inventions on how to persecute those people. And this is now happening in the name of Jesus. And if you wouldn't convert to become a Roman Catholic, they killed you for believing the very same thing that we believe in this room this morning. That jesus christ is the son of god and you receive him apart from any religion apart from any religious denomination including this one there's you. you can go to hell faster being a baptist than anything i know so, please understand i'm not trying to attack you if you're here today and you are a roman catholic man there i have absolutely no animosity whatsoever in my heart man I'll go to dinner with you if you buy. I'll do I'll buy. I'm serious, man. I'll spend any amount of time with you that I could possibly spend. But now listen, if you're going to go to Revelation 17 and you're going to understand this woman, and you're going to understand the judgment that's going to come upon her, and you're going to understand how this woman is drunk with the blood of the saints and with the martyrs of Jesus, You've got to understand where this woman came from. She didn't just appear during the tribulation period. She has been around for centuries and centuries and centuries. And Satan has had a heyday just dressing her up and changing the face. And it's incredible. We're not going to, we're not going to hit that, that third one this morning. I know you're going, Phew, hallelujah to you. But, but now Listen without packing up, would you you just look right here? This is going to be the one world religion of the Antichrist. This woman, this strange woman from the book of Proverbs, this religious woman from the Tower of Babel, it's the same woman that sits on the back of the Antichrist during the Tribulation period. And church, listen, we are living at a time. As I said at the beginning, we're almost 20% of the world's population has already embraced it. And listen, it's getting ready to rise in popularity like you could never imagine. The one world religion of the Antichrist isn't atheism, it isn't Hinduism, it isn't Buddhism, it's Catholicism. And you see, unless we backed up today and we began to, to look at this thing through the Bible, you know what? We never really understand who this woman actually is. And that's why if you go to the commentaries, everybody and their brothers all split on, you know, who is this woman and all this kind of stuff. It, 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 there's no guesswork involved. If you just let the Bible be the Bible and you just let the thing unfold. And again, it is not a shot toward anybody's religion. We're just trying to present the cold, hard facts of this thing. Do you remember why? So that we're not simple. So that we're not void of understanding. So that we don't have the wisdom that we need to discern this woman lest she lure us into her bed and she take us to hell in the midst of a religious system that goes by the name of the universal Christianity. Some of you that are in this room today, I would imagine, are people that are a part of that system. Listen, we love you. We'll be thrilled to talk with you about all of this in a, you know... No axe-to-grind kind of a way. But now listen, church, if 20% of the world has already embraced this, do you realize we live near and work with people who are part of this system that really are some of the most well-meaning people on this planet? And the Jesus that they have embraced with all of their heart, they are trying to love Him, and do not realize that it is this great whore that Revelation 17 talks about. They don't understand. And, and, and listen, the, the, we don't want to run out of here today and everybody go with your Bible and find somebody in that system and, hey, do you understand where this thing came from? That, that's not what we're, we're talking about doing. Our call is we're left on this planet to reach the people of this planet with the true saving message from the Word of God. And we can't, we can't go out there and beat people up. We're going to have to get to the place to where we pray for these people and pray that God would give us the opportunity to let these folks know their history, And where this thing actually originated and and how this whole setup actually began. And uh, Listen, these people are not our enemies. These are our friends, man. And we've got to make sure that we don't get some kind of wild-eyed look in our eye and coming against people. But as we can see, God is going to come against a system of religion. Those are his words. Our call is not to come against any person, but to seek to reach him with the gospel. And I I hope that as we leave here today, that maybe all of the things that we've seen, because you can see, this was a masterful stroke, man. This was a masterful strategy. I mean, you you, you have to do a lot of research to to find out what all has taken place historically to come to that. And most people are never going to take the time to do that, so pray that somehow... God would use you to begin to reach these people before that judgment does begin to come upon that system. If you're here today and you have questions about something that you heard, if you, maybe you're here today and, and, and through the midst of all of this you begin to understand that you're, you're trapped in some kind of a religious system that is a, a, apart from what this word says, we would love to talk with you today about receiving jesus christ apart from this church apart from any religious ritual or anything that you do but simply coming to him by faith and we would love the opportunity today to to talk to you if you have questions in any way again our pastors will be up on either side of the front of this room we invite you to come and uh our folks are going to be dismissed to go to our our flocks ministry for about the next 20 minutes or so and uh I'd encourage you to go to that so we can make some practical applications of this passage uh, for our church family. But let me ask you, if you would, to bow your heads right now. And Lord, wow, this has just uh, been such a, a heavy subject that we've talked about today. Heavy just in, in the sense of understanding it. Heavy in the sense of its, of its content realizing that, uh, I'm, that there are no doubt people in this room today that are part of this system that we have talked about. And, Lord, I pray that somehow in the midst of everything that we have, we have done today and we've talked about, Lord, I, I, I pray that you would allow this to find entrance into, into their hearts I I do pray that you would flush the human element of this thing and realize that our desire today is simply to expose this woman for who she really is and the judgment that it will befall her in the very, very near future. So Lord, I, I, I pray that the grace that you promised would be sufficient. I pray that folks would receive That grace and hearing the message today. And again, may that settle down so that the light of the glorious gospel of Christ is able to shine unto them. And we do pray for their salvation today. We pray for our friends and relatives and co workers, so many of them that out of such sincere hearts have been blinded by Satan and this woman, this counterfeit system of religion that he has used historically. And Lord, would you help us as a church never to be mean-spirited in any way, never try to promote ourselves as the only ones that are, are right and yet, Lord, help us to stand upon the truth of your word and hate any system that is trapping people and sending them to an eternal hell. So, Lord, we need you to, to, to teach us and to, to help us how we can reach the people in our culture with the simple message of the gospel before it's too late. So, Lord, would you, would you please help us?